Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be exploring the relationship between sport and climate change. And this comes really from my own personal love of sport and my desire, of course, to see a better planet. This summer I was very fortunate to be at Wembley to see the England women's team win the European Championships. Nearly 90,000 people packed into the stadium. And it did cross my mind at one point, bizarrely during the match, what the impact of that would be on the climate. I'm also a season ticket holder at Bristol City Football Club. And while sport is only a part of society, it clearly has a large reach. What if sport was used to do communication about climate change? What kind of impact could that have on the thousands of people travelling to sporting events each weekend? And in the run-up to the Men's World Cup in Qatar, there's been some discussion about the impact that that will have on the climate. In fact, protests in France have seen mayors refusing to show the games on large screens in cities and town centres as a result of both the perceived impact on the climate and in protest against perceived human rights negligence in Qatar. Later in the podcast, we'll hear about a team close to my heart and what they're doing to try and combat their impact on the climate. And we'll hear about a cricket team whose very existence is born out of a group whose purpose is to try to save the world from climate change. Gilles Dufran is an author of a report responding to FIFA's claim that the Qatar World Cup will be carbon neutral. So basically, we started out just with the question, like, how realistic is this? Um, can we trust it? And does it, does it really mean anything? And is it based on, on sound accounting? Um, and our conclusion is that it is not credible. It's, it's a misleading claims. It's basically greenwashing. And it's highly unlikely that the World Cup is not going to have a negative impact on the climate. There are two main reasons for that. The first is problems around accounting of emissions, the fact that they have massively underestimated the emissions, especially related to the construction of the stadiums. And I'll go a little bit more in detail on that. And the second issue is related to the compensation. So to compensate emissions, they are purchasing these carbon offsets, these carbon credits, so basically buying emission reductions from someone else. And the credits they have purchased, um, first of all, they've purchased very few, and the credits are very low quality. So I'll speak a little bit to that as well. So on the accounting issue, um, the main, the most obvious element, let's say, the one that was really kind of glaring at us, um, is related to the accounting for the emissions of the construction of the stadiums. So there are eight stadiums that will be used for the World Cup. Uh, one was already there and has been um, somewhat renovated. One is temporary in the sense that it can be dismantled and then transported and used again somewhere else, um, which in theory is a good idea. In practice, there are no concrete public plans on whether and how this will actually happen. So the organizers have said that, yeah, this will be transported somewhere or maybe given to countries that need sporting infrastructure. Um, but as far as I'm aware, there's no public information on what is the concrete plan. Um, so that remains to be seen. And then they have built six new permanent stadiums um, in Doha. And this is where the accounting gets really problematic because essentially what they have done is 
they have calculated the emissions associated with the construction of all of those stadiums. So the total footprint of those stadiums. And then they have said, these stadiums are going to exist for 60 years. That's their assumption for the lifetime of the stadiums. And they have spread out the construction emissions. So not the emissions from the use of the stadiums, which logically is spread out over the period, but they have spread out the emissions from the construction of the stadiums over that 60 year period. And they said, well, the World Cup is only going to take place for one month. And so we're only responsible for a share of emissions that corresponds to this one month. So basically from the total emissions associated with the construction of these six new stadiums, they take responsibility for a share that is one month divided by 60 years. So it's a very, very small share of, um, of the total emissions. And that's why we say this probably underestimates the emissions by about 1.4 megatons, so 1.4 million tons. And so, and that's, that's quite a conservative estimate. Um, and so if you add that to their existing estimate, their total footprint is closer to five megatons rather than the 3.6 that they, that they have announced. So that's kind of the, the, the main problem with the accounting, let's say, is this idea or this, this kind of artificial spread of emissions and saying we're only responsible for this small share. Um, and then turning to the second issue of the of the carbon credits. Um, so I'm not sure how familiar you are with carbon markets, but just to give you like a, a rapid overview, the idea is that you have projects that are implemented um, in different countries around the world. And then these projects um, reduce emissions and they generate carbon credits. Each credit is supposed to represent one ton of CO2 that has been reduced. And so to compensate all of their emissions, According to their own calculations, they will, FIFA and the Qatari organizers would need to buy 3.6 million credits because their footprint is 3.6 million tons. Um, so far, they have an agreement with one standard called the Global Carbon Council to purchase 1.8 million credits. So they have an existing agreement for, um, yeah, like about, about half roughly um, of the total that they have to buy. They have so far purchased um, slightly less than 200,000. So they have 200,000 from the 3.6 million that they need. So they're pretty far off the mark. And it is noteworthy that the, this global carbon council that they are buying credits from um, has basically been established by Qatar. So instead of like the whole idea of having standards um, and the, the whole structure of the carbon market is that you have these independent standards and programs that are in charge of registering the projects. They, checked where, they check whether a project is credible, like is it really reducing emissions and is it harming local communities, for example? Does it do the accounting properly, et cetera? Um, and you have, you have a few standards that exist. There are two major standards that are called the the verified carbon standard and gold standard. So these are kind of, let's say, independent organizations. But instead of buying credits from those, um, the Qatari organizers have basically set up their own standard, which is the Global Carbon Council, um, which raises serious questions about the independence of that standard, because the whole point of having a standard is to have this third party that can um, yeah, be there as a as an external voice to, to, to guarantee the quality of the credits. So they have established their own standard. And so far, the organizers have purchased credits from three projects. 
So in our report, we wrote um, two, but since we published our report, there's a third one that has um, sold credits. All of them are renewable energy projects. Two of them are in Turkey, one is in Serbia. The issue with those credits um, is so they're very, they're not, it's not really credible to compensate your emissions with those. And that's because these projects are, um, they're said to be not non-additional, which is a bit of a technical term to say that basically these projects would happen anyway, regardless of whether they can sell credits or not. Um, because I mean, here we're talking about relatively large scale renewable energy projects in Turkey and Serbia. These are profitable, like they're just economically viable. Um, expanding renewable energy generation in most countries around the world um, is economically viable. In a few countries, it's not like in least developed countries, for example, and so there it might still make sense, but those projects would definitely have happened without the sale of the credits. And so while FIFA is claiming, well, we're paying for these extra reductions and thanks to our money, we're generating these. And so it's offsetting our emissions. The reality is basically they're sending some money to a project that doesn't need it. And so the emissions that um, the reductions that are generated by those projects are maybe real, but they're completely unrelated to the purchase of carbon credits by FIFA. Um, and so it's just inaccurate to say that this compensates for any sort of um, emissions. And so that's that kind of explains why um, these offsets are not credible um, and why as a result, the whole kind of compensation claim is not is not credible. Can you tell me a bit more about the legacy of the stadiums? I mean, that, the stadium that's going to move after the games, that sounds really interesting, if a little difficult. I think the, the dismantable stadium is, it's an interesting idea. Like in theory, I think it's a good idea if we're, stay within this mindset of continuing to organize a FIFA World Cup in a specific location every four years, like as long as we don't have like a, a bigger systemic think, rethink of how these events are run. It's an interesting idea to at least be able to reuse some of the stadiums and, and move them. However, um, as I was saying, there's no concrete plan to move it yet. And there is an interesting um, accounting um, study and report from FIFA on the dismantable stadium where they basically explain that actually the footprint of the dismantable stadium is higher than of a regular stadium, for example, because you actually need um, more robust material because it needs to be to sustain the, the dismounting and then transport and then reassembly, etc. And so it's actually more polluting. And if you had a scenario, let's say, where um, you dismantle the stadium, you transport it very far and then you reuse it once, then it's actually worse than uh, building two different permanent stadiums. And so the overall impact really depends. And when I say that, it's from FIFA's numbers, right? So it's not my numbers. Um, so the overall impact really depends on how much is going to be reused and how far and how many times it's going to be transported. So overall, I think nice idea in theory could be beneficial, but it's not really helping like a more system change. And it really depends on how it's going to be implemented concretely. What about the other stadiums? Qatar has, um, well, claims that there are legacy plans in place. So they have plans to reuse all of the stadiums. Um, however, in the public domain so far, there are two lines per stadium, basically one sentence. Um, and it's incredibly vague. So it says things like, um, will be transformed into a boutique hotel and sporting infrastructure for university for example um, some of the some of the stadiums would be used for hosting local football teams 
one of them would host the Qatar women football team, um, which I don't think is playing many games. Um, so there's definitely a big question mark over um, how these stadiums are going to be used in the future. They have also said that they will um, take out some of the seats because the organizers themselves recognize that they don't need eight world-class stadiums in one single city. And so they say, okay, we're going to downsize, we're going to reduce the number of seats, and we're going to donate those to um, countries that are in need of supporting infrastructure. Um, again, zero concrete plans on what's going to happen to those seats and how they're going to kind of distribute these. I think it's something, it's close to 200,000 seats. I think it was 170, if I remember correctly. So yeah, it's a bit, there's a big question mark over that. Is it actually possible to put on a World Cup in a zero carbon or carbon neutral way? I, I think it's it's not possible. Um, I mean, holding it as a zero carbon event in absolute terms is impossible today um, because there is no way, among other things, there's no way to decarbonize the aviation sector right now. And there's no real perspective to do it over the next 10, 15, 20 years. And so that kind of connects to what I was hinting at earlier of like having a system change and rethinking how the World Cup might be organized um, in the sense that if we continue with the logic of hosting it in one single country and having everyone fly there and not really caring about whether that country already has the um, necessary infrastructure, that is definitely going to come at a cost. In theory, you could compensate for that, but in practice, the quality of the carbon market and the, the robustness of the carbon credits, carbon offsets that are being sold is really lacking. And a lot of the credits that are being purchased at the moment by companies and um, these sorts of event organizers, they suffer from similar similar problems to what I just described of yeah, coming from projects that would not happen, that would happen anyway, or coming from um, projects that completely overestimate their impact. So they might be good projects, but they just say, oh yeah, we've reduced like a million tons of CO2, even though they reduced just 100,000. Um, so long story short, no, it's not very, it's not credible that this can be hosted without an impact in the climate. So is there anything they could have done? Uh, I think there are probably things that could be done um, in building a more sustainable um trying to focus on more sustainable buildings, developing um, local transport, which to some extent Qatar has tried to do, um, developing definitely increasing renewable power generation to be able to um, generate more green electricity uh, during the event, but also uh, afterwards, because that's also one of the challenges is like trying to make sure that it contributes to a more sustainable long-term transition. However, I'm struggling, as you know this, I'm struggling to answer this question because I think it's a I'm not sure this is the right thing to focus on, right? To try to make these events a little less climate damaging at the margin. I think as long as we stay within the model where we organize every four years uh, an event that attracts a million people from around the world in a place that doesn't have the infrastructure, it's going to have a climate impact, right? And it's going to stay with the massive climate impacts for the next decades. And so if we, at the same time, it's hard to say like, yeah, let's just uh, scrap football, right? Like uh, we also want to uh, um, be realistic here. And so I think the balance is in rethinking how the tournament is organized. Um, and I think there, yeah, it's much more of a systemic um, 
approach and I'm probably not the best person to think about this, but definitely FIFA should have a think about it and probably um, people outside of FIFA as well. But you could have options, you know, from the more most kind of crazy idealist situations where you just identify some international territory where you just have all sporting events to more practicable things where you say, okay, we're just going to have teams play in the nearest stadium, like the stadium that's in between the two countries, for example. And then you try to, instead of having everything in the same country and having everyone to fly there, you try to see, I'm sure you could, right? Like instead of having consultants who model the uh, impacts of building stadiums, we could have consultants who model where can teams play to minimize the emissions from travel. And you then you uh, reduce travel emissions, but then you also don't have any infrastructure emissions because you use existing infrastructure. So. To me, and again, it's kind of outside, I'm just speaking as a layperson, I guess, but someone who has been um, talking a lot, a lot about FIFA lately, um, I feel like maybe that's where you find more solutions, try right? to think about how you can completely transform the, the event. Beyond your report, is there any accountability for them saying these things, you know, if, if they're not true? I mean, that's a tricky one. Um, not really, in the sense that they're just making these public announcements. The main thing that could be used to hold them accountable um, are laws on misleading advertisement, um, false and misleading advertisement, which exist in many countries around the world, definitely, uh, definitely in Europe, UK, US. Um, whether and how these are applicable is quite difficult. Um, it's it's broader than just this claim, right? Like there are a lot of companies now making carbon neutrality and net zero claims, and increasingly there are. Court, court cases against this. Um, there's one in the Netherlands, for example, there's a court case against um, KLM, the, the Dutch airline, where they said they are going to be carbon neutral. And there's a court case saying this is not it's just misleading advertisement. Um, so that's one way that companies could be held accountable, but it is very difficult because the legislation is quite old. Um, and it's also very expensive, right? And like, it's basically NGOs doing that um, and NGOs don't have the budget or the resources to really take these companies to court on misleading advertisement claims. So in practice, it's not happening so much. This isn't the only net zero claim that you've examined, is it? How did the others hold up to scrutiny? So we did, the two main studies we did on this was one on carbon neutral fossil fuels. So. Yeah, as you can guess, <laughs> the result was not so much that they are credible. Um, it was mostly about, it was focused on LNG shipments, so natural gas. It's quite, a, it's quite a trend at the moment. There are a lot of um, deals for carbon neutral gas shipments, um, which are problematic in various ways. And then another one was um, not so much on carbon neutrality, but on net zero, which is, I mean, in a way is very similar or the same thing, and the net zero targets of companies. So we looked at the net zero targets of 25 of the world's largest companies. Um, so like household names like Microsoft and Facebook and uh, Walmart, et cetera. Um, and basically looking at what's behind their announcements, like is there an actual plan to reduce emissions? Do they cover all of their emissions? To what extent do they rely on carbon credits? And from those, we found one that was that was kind of um, that had an acceptable level of ambition, let's say, uh, which was Maersk, the the shipping company. Um, but yeah, all the other ones were, I mean, one of the main issue, there's definitely the reliance on carbon offsets for sure. But another issue is the fact that um, the targets often don't really cover all of their emissions. And that's what I was saying also with FIFA, where they just say, okay, we're going to be carbon neutral, but then, or climate neutral, but then they don't cover all of their emissions. 
It seems to me clearly a good thing if large companies and large organisations and indeed large sporting events and countries want to be seen to be green, to be doing things that are benefiting or at least not harming the planet. If nothing else, it indicates that public opinion requires them to do something about it. The idea of playing the World Cup in neutral venues or not in a specific country around the world does seem as though it might be a bit of a challenge for football fans. But if COVID-19 taught us anything, it's surely that escapism in the form of sport is better if it exists in any form, even if it's not the perfect form that we're used to. As I say, I'm a season ticket holder at Bristol City, and you could go to Ashton Gate, the home of Bristol City, and not really notice that anything was happening that was any different to the way that football has been done for many years now. But if you look closely, you'll notice some detail. Outside the South Stand, you'll find a bicycle repair centre, which is made available for fans to encourage them to cycle to the stadium. And while the club is keen not to be seen as making grandiose gestures, or indeed greenwashing, they did recently announce something called Project Whitebeam. So before one of the matches this month, I thought I'd take the opportunity to find out what it was all about. I'm Peter Smith, I'm project manager at Bristol Sport and Ashton Gate, and, and one of those projects is uh, project managing Project Whitebeam, which is the cross-group environmental sustainability initiative uh, between Bristol City, Bristol Bears, Bristol Flyers and Ashton Gate. Okay, so that's football, rugby, basketball? Yeah. And the stadium more widely? And the stadium itself, yeah, because Ashton Gate in it, on its own right is a big established um, you know, Monday to Sunday uh, business events, conferencing, exhibition centre. So the reason why it's called Project Whitebeam, it's not uh, a random name. We didn't want to talk about um, zero because our project is not just about carbon. It's about waste and biodiversity, etc. We didn't want to label it green, A, because none of our clubs wear green, but also the green message isn't for everybody. It turns some people off before they even open it, open the book, so to speak. They won't even take the book off the shelf. Um, so we wanted to find something that was uniquely Bristolian and the white beam is a plant of the rose family it's got a few species that are endemic only to Avon Gorge and Lee Woods so from the stadium you can literally see the only place in the world that this grows it's uniquely Bristolian, it's fragile and it's beautiful and I think that's what we're trying to sort of convey in that mm. so Project White Beam was, um, was born out of a realisation that we as a sporting group needed to uh, understand more about our impact on the environment so it was initiated pre-covid and we actually project that uh, we launched the project um, just before the the first lockdown um, internally and seeing a little storm on the horizon that was covid we we kept the ship in the harbor actually and just um, tried to make progress while we could while things were locked down and then we publicly launched it in august this year 2022 and what Project White Beam seeks to do across the sporting group is is to recognise our impact on the environment, measure it and mitigate it. It's not about saving the world and we know that we won't be perfect certainly now and we may not be perfect for, for a long while yet, but we do realise that we have an impact. So it's just about starting that that uh, progress and, and setting targets. So the, the clubs have signed up to the UN Sports for Climate Action Framework which gives them a target of 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and net zero by 2040. 
Now, we don't know exactly how we're going to do that yet, but that's part of the point of it, is mm. to set the target, know where you need to get to, and then worry about how to get there. Is it possible for thousands of people to come to a football match in a net zero way? I'd say at the moment, probably not, if we're honest. And going out to where we are at the minute, I think the, the clubs and the stadiums are probably in a similar position to where many of us are in our personal lives, where we have an impact um, every time we do anything. And I don't want us to get hung up on that on a personal level as well. As soon as I wake up in the morning, I flick a light on. You can have some soda panels, you can have a green energy supply. There's still going to be some impact in there somewhere. As soon as you go to work, you can have an electric car. It will have some impact. Even a bike, it will have some impact. It's still got tyres, it's still got metal, etc., etc. But I think long term, there, there will be a way where we as individuals, as clubs and countries and, and, and globally as well, will find a way to do things in a truly sustainable manner. I think we have to. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we don't have all the answers yet, but I think that's got to be the aim. Okay. So what sort of thing are you doing? It's pretty broad. So the, the Project White Beam seeks to look across different things of the environment, if, you, if that makes any sense. So we look at climate change, we look at waste, we look at water, we look at air quality, we look at biodiversity. So it's not purely a carbon project, it's not purely a waste project. Um, we've already started to make some progress on a lot of those things. So, for example, food. I think most people realise that food is something that we, as individuals, all consume you put 25,000 people in a stadium, that's quite a lot of food and drink. So we know that there's a, there's a big uh, impact there. Project White Beam we, and what we've achieved on, on food, for example, is we've looked at food supply. So over 50% of the products sold here today would have come from within less than 12 miles of the stadium. Now, I don't know for sure about every club, but I, that's pretty unique where you've got that much stuff. In Bristol Beer Factory, who last summer we went into partnership with and supply a lot of our beer and ale products it's literally 350 meters up the road um we've looked at the choices we've not borrowed down into the detail of um sourcing yet and procurement but we do know that there should be availability for plant-based foods and i think we worked out so looking at yesterday i think it's something like 19 vegetarian options of which i think 17 of those were hot today so if you're vegetarian you've got 19 options um, I am vegetarian and I remember going to football grounds uh, over the years and bluntly I stopped trying because I'd get to so many grounds and you'd say, especially as an away fan, you'd turn around and say, What's, what have you got that's vegetarian? And it'd be crisps. When I literally remember eating about five bags of crisps, I was so hungry. We've also, I think, I think on top of my head, about 15 of those are vegan options as well. Of our 10 biggest alcoholic uh, drinks, they're all vegan. So... There's a choice there. And then we've looked. So that's, I guess, the procurement of it and, and what we offer on site. And then there's the, the waste element to it as well. So uh, the biggest thing is that we, for us, uh, football clubs can be, and stadiums can be, big takeaways, if you like, with a lot of waste at the end of the day. You've got a very big peak on a Saturday and not much. So um, we're keen to make sure we're not throwing surplus pies and pasties in the bin at the end of the day. So we partnered with St Mungo's homeless charity and any surplus food left today that's safe to be transported off will go less than a mile away to a women's refuge and beyond that as well we've had now two and a half years of partnership with Fair Share Southwest who operate from a building just about 20 metres that way that's on our site 
Um, they've had a warehouse, as I said, for two and a half years, and they've been able to pass on nearly five million meals worth, million meals worth of food to people living with food insecurity. Now, in the early phases of that, some of that was actually DEFRA aid, but most of what they've done for the last couple of years is food that would otherwise be surplus from supermarkets. I, I don't have the stats at hand, but it, it's literally hundreds of tons and hundreds, if not thousands, of um, of tons of carbon saved through that. So mm. that has a really, really big impact. It's not just in the local area at home matches that Bristol City Football Club are looking at different ways to avoid waste in food. Matt Parsons is the first team operations manager at Bristol City, and a couple of seasons ago he started a process where food that was taken away with the footballers would not go to waste. When they go away, the team food itself, they have surplus. You're never going to get it, manage it quite exact. Um, so, I mean, massive credit to Matt. He's been doing it for three years now, and I think over the course of those three years, he thinks it's about almost a thousand meals worth of food over the course of each season. Um, and they make the effort to go out to a local charity run in the city or near the, the stadium that we're playing at and get the surplus food to them. And, uh, and the reason I give Matt and his team a huge amount of credit for that specifically is that there's, there's often in sport a debate about team performance versus environmental social consciousness and all this stuff and Matt's found a pathway that it doesn't affect that he does it on his own back it, they travel a long way to some of these away games and they're very very busy and Matt's managed to find a way to to, to you know, it, that's effort, he has to go away and find charities and, uh, and soup kitchens or, or shelters in towns that he doesn't know and find a, a charity that, that actually wants that food. That sounds really silly, but it's not appropriate for every shelter because they may be zero food or they may only deal with a certain supply of food that has to be regular. So, you know, Matt got organised because him and the team wanted to achieve good and they've done it. And that's, again, 3,000 odd meals that have gone into the mouth rather than into a bin, mm. which not only helps those people that's feeding, but it also means that that's not then rotting in a bin and producing mm greenhouse gas emissions so uh, thinking about the people getting to the stadium what can you do as a club yeah so travel and transport is is another big hitter um we we are in the process of measuring our benchmark here in terms of greenhouse gas emissions so we don't know how much a percentage it is some other leagues and stadiums around europe have estimated that roughly 80 percent of greenhouse gases could be supported travel so we're not in direct control of that um but it is something that we we want to, you know, potentially to make great strides in. So, in terms of that, it's really about trying to encourage sustainable travel and mass travel wherever possible and reduce single car usage. Um, when we redeveloped Ashton Gate and reopened it, so opened it up fully in 2016, we started to introduce the, the matchday shuttle bus routes. Um, we have three, um, two from park and ride sites and one from. Uh, Temple Meads and City Centre they are subsidised by the club and there's a significant subsidy goes into that um, and I th- I, again I caution about my statistic here but I think when we measured it uh, over the course of 2019 pre-pandemic the collective miles that we'd um, that we'd got people or kilometres should I say that people had travelled on those buses something like two and a half million in a year I'll check that right. um, 
but it, it's it's a lot again because of the the power and potential of a lot of people you've also got a lot of potential good to be done so it's you know thousands of people every match day using sustainable travel in terms of cycling we've got cycle racks we've got free bike pump uh, to use and on days like and today's one of them we have a bike repair workshop out there we appreciate that cycling isn't going to be appropriate for everybody due to distance traveled ability ability to ride a bike whatever it may be but we do want to try and take away barriers to do it and incentivize it so having Leah out there at the moment giving cyclists free bike repairs and, and, and advice is something to, to encourage and reward that that behavior so yeah we really want to pull on lots of different things there and, and again I want to get away from this one solution for everybody's travel because we're a broad church with lots of different fans coming from lots of different places and lots of different behaviors some will pick up family some will drop off kids some will go via pubs or whatever on the on, on route so it's about trying to offer as many different options to get people out of their cars as possible mm. do you have a sense of how many people walk our last survey was done pre-covid uh, so we did a supported travel survey and we used to do that annually we we paused last year just because we'll, we'll run it this summer instead because uh or this autumn should i say we we want to borrow down to a little bit more detail about the carbon of that journey not just the behavior but we need a little bit more detail on each person's behavior we are lucky compared to a lot of clubs insofar as we are we might be on a slight western edge but we are within walking distance of a lot of the city and a lot of the heartland we're you know we're what 30 minutes walk from the city center 40 minutes from the mainline train station probably 15 to Parson street railway station um so yeah we you know anecdotally you go out there that now you wouldn't necessarily know which people are parked up and walked in but you'll see you know you can see the floods coming down now i did out myself as something of a football fan at the start of this podcast and as well as being a season ticket holder at ashton gate for the men's bristol city team i'm also a season ticket holder at the robbins high performance center the home of the bristol city women's team the robbins high performance center is also the training facilities for both the men's and women's teams and over the road from that is the Bears High Performance Centre, the training ground for Bristol Sports rugby team. Both training facilities and Ashton Gate are, to some extent, new facilities. We're lucky in that sense, um, again compared to most clubs, because we've had investment in all our facilities. So Ashton Gate Stadium had the redevelopment between 2014 and 2016. Uh, Bristol City High Performance Centre and the Bears High Performance Centre are all new facilities. So... Um, Ashton Gate, as an example, has 750 square metres worth of solar panels on the Lansdowne Stand roof. We have energy-saving light bulbs, so if we sit in here long enough, and last time I was doing a podcast in here, the lights turned out on us, for example. <laughs> um, if you go into the bathrooms, they are low-water, uh, low-flow taps. Um, we have a building management system which enables Ross and the team upstairs, and even remotely when they're at home, to realise that if a room's being heated and the people have vacated or they've realized that actually it's been left on they can remotely control things so it, those things some of those mechanics and the engineering behind it's quite i find it quite dry and boring personally but actually it makes a massive difference to your energy use um but we're not there yet well, there's obviously more we can do um but this over robins and bears high performance center they i mean make sure i get the right way around but i think uh, the robins doesn't high performance center has no gas it's a zero gas facility for example yeah. so yeah um we're lucky in that respect we yeah. pull far less energy compared to a, a a lot of similar venues where do you think the biggest wins might be probably three energy travel and supportive behavior um energy i think we've, we've touched on there we 
we've got a fairly low bar, so that's relatively hard for us to keep going behind it. But there is more you can do, and technologies will change and develop. So we've got to keep pushing that. Um, I think um, food uh, again, we we can continue to get better at that. I appreciate you mentioned waste. Um, we definitely have some some progress to make on waste, although. Ashton Gate is a zero to landfill facility. Um, there's more we can do with rationalizing the journey between what comes in in terms of what we procure in terms of um, sort of packaging or what have you and make sure that the journey to where it goes afterwards is, is, is lined up. Making progress on that, but we, we're not there yet. Um, and I mentioned fan behavior, and this is something we did last over the last couple of years with, um, with a Bristol-based um, enterprise called Pledgeable is to enhance the power of the sporting group to encourage fan behaving fan behavior beyond the the the, the, the footprint of Ashton Gate. I'm, I'm slightly cautious here because we we can't it would be remiss of us to say well supporters you go behave better elsewhere and we'll just keep doing what we've always done here. So the onus is on us to look after our own our own our own things but it'd also be wrong to ignore the fact that sport has a massive reach um, and it also has a massive reach to some hard to hard to reach sex of society who don't necessarily engage with the climate change message yeah. and they won't necessarily listen to podcasts that talk about green stuff they won't necessarily yeah. read newspapers who champion this stuff they may them and their social groups may not particularly think or care about this stuff but we can communicate with them um, and I think the Bristol Pledge Board, for anybody that's not come across it, is a it's just a bit of fun really on, online where you we go out to fan the supporters and ask them to make environmental pledges pinned to a game. They select what they're going to change that week or that month that year, and it will calculate the carbon saved, and it'll it'll actually then calculate it by supporter base, and it just gives a little league table. And last year Bristol City won the inaugural Pledge Board League. Bristol City fans. Pled, made more pledges to save more carbon than any other club by a long way Bristol City women fan ditto way better than any other women's club and Bristol Bears are the only professional club to have engaged on, on a rugby sense so to be the first professional club to partner with Pledgeable was great to win the inaugural Pledgeable League was great but the real thing is that those pledges count, uh, I think the sum total is about 638,000 kilograms of carbon saved and that goes to show the potential of us being able to communicate and speak with such a wide fan base. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't want to do that in a preachy way. Uh, we've got to make sure it's, it's fun and engaging. Extinction Rebellion is a global environmental movement whose stated aim is using non-violent civil disobedience to compel governments into action to try and to avoid tipping points in the climate system in terms of biodiversity loss and the risk of social and ecological collapse. It also has a cricket club. My name's Zena Cooper. I'm one of the Bristol Dodos Cricket Club. Our uh, original name was the Extinction Rebellion Cricket Club, which formed in uh, 2019. Why the change of name? The club were keen to give a little bit of distance between the cricket club and the rebellion, because when we did the series of talks... I think at that stage, a lot of the general public have kind of soured in their taste for uh, rebellion. It all started happy, jolly. Everybody thought it was something exciting and then it just was tarnished by the press. So it became a name that we didn't really need anymore, okay. I suppose. 
Okay. But it brought us huge amounts of publicity in the first, you know, the first year that we existed. Um, you know, everybody, everybody loves us. People still love us. <laughs> it's a shame to have to kind of ditch the name. We still exist. We're still all the same. But yeah, so the Bristol Dodos is going to be what we work under for community stuff, like friendly games and, you know, home ground stuff. And when we take the kit out onto the streets for rebellions, which is, was our original purpose, um, then we'll still be the Extinction Rebellion Cricket Club. It will still always be there. I mean, you can't be upset with uh, a silly, fluffy, plump bird. <laughs> a dodo is just a totally ridiculous animal. Zena and the Dodos organised a series of talks at cricket clubs. They were going to be delivered back in 2020. So after the rebellion, we got so much amazing press. We got um, interest from the wisdom. They featured us in the the 2019 and oh, sorry, the 2019-20 edition. And we had good links with them. And then we also got into the 2021 edition. Despite Zena's firm and passionate belief that everybody loves cricket, I do know that some of you might not know everything there is to know about it. So just a quick aside. The Wisden Cricketer's Almanac is something of the Bible of cricket. It's a cricket reference book that's published every year. The Times of Declare series was started because we had made quite a lot of links with a gentleman who wrote the Hits for Six report. Um, he used to work at Lords, and he offered to um, to come and give a talk for us for free. Uh, to kind of link up and collaborate. So Russell Seymour did the Hit for Six report back in 2019. Russell Seymour's Hit for Six report brings together the expertise of climate scientists with the science of sports physiology to study and explore the current and future impacts of our changing climate. Its executive summary begins, Cricket is already feeling the effects of a planet that's heating up. Scientific studies have shown the fingerprints of climate change on the heat wave that in 2017-2018 impacted youth matches in Australia, Storm Desmond in 2015-16 that washed away Appleby and Eden Cricket Club in Cumbria and the drought that played Cape Town in the 2017-2018 Indian Cricket Tour of South Africa we found that there were loads of other speakers who wanted to talk about these issues as well. Um, so we collaborated with Andrew Sims from the Rapid Transition Alliance. He um, had done a report called the Sweat Not Oil Report, which basically started to uncover how advertising in sport is part of uh, a greenwashing, they call it greenwash now, a greenwash campaigns for you know large-scale polluters or for companies that don't necessarily have the um the the best reputations environmentally um they might sponsor you know cycling or um football or you know to because people but sport is a very emotional thing it's part of our culture it's part of our history it's part of the thing that people love about our nation. It gives people a huge amount of pride um, individually and as a country. You know, people run marathons and people do all kinds of things. Like sport is uh, uh, how humans 
better themselves on individual scales and on global scales as well. So there's a massive amount of pride there. And, you know, the large scale um, companies and polluters, obviously, they capitalize on, on that. So the Sweat Not Oil report started to uncover how deeply seeded these ideas are and how they're actually, when you really look at it, quite incongruous, how it's, it's actually quite uh, devastating for sport. So you've got uh, polluters, they actually, you know, cause not pollution just across the globe is in, in specific areas. So people can't breathe. You know, there was a case in India where Sri Lanka versus India, the, the pollution was so bad that the Sri Lankans were wearing masks on the pitch. They, they didn't want to, to play. And the, the game, I think, got cancelled, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, these things are really, really having a massive effect. And mm. people are starting to, to join the dots now. People are starting to see um, how these issues are connected. Uh, is climate change affecting sport? But what about sport affecting climate change? Yeah, absolutely. It's exactly that. So um, the way the sports world is structured, it's, you know, it's based on, like, we've had it, for however many years now that sponsors are basically the reasons we feel like sponsors are the reasons we can have sport um you know we used to have the benson and hedges cup we used to have like you know uh tobacco companies sponsoring um motorsports and everything you know i mean those little playing cards that you'd get with full footballers and people would collect them in cigarette packets and all that kind of stuff like you know, it's embedded so deeply in our culture that you must have sponsorship in order to, for sport to exist. Um, well, in essence, that's only one. That's only one way of uh, of funding sport, really. In essence, um, and sport can choose to take money from from other organisations that actually, or it can also, you know use its influence to say actually we expect better but actually you know i mean everybody has to put their hands up in essence that sport is a global machine it's part of a global um you know culture and we want to see international players we want to see the highest you know performers um at all levels and yes, players get flown all over the around the world and all of their teams and et cetera. Um, I think people started to learn more about that when it was COVID. You could see that the COVID bubbles and how many people actually really needed to be in that country to, to have sport and to, for it to, to happen. And obviously fans moving around, but it's very true. Yes, yeah, sport makes a massive impact on the global scale but is it as big as governments and oil companies is it as big as all these other things like i suppose in essence everyone has to put their house in order you know and sport has an opportunity to reflect and to look at how we can still have all the positive things of you know, having sport on a global stage, but then also 
how we do that sustainably. People talk about sustainability and, you know, it's not impossible. We have so many solutions to these problems. We just have to be brave enough to actually start looking at it and want to find solutions because the solutions are there. Yes, it's going to be challenging. Yes, it's going to be different. Uh, it's going to feel like, you know, a big change and everyone hates change. But in essence, uh, I think when it comes to change, people always see it as a negative thing. But if you are part of making that change happen, if you're part of the narrative to, you know, enact change, um, then you feel more embedded in the positive vision of what it can actually be. You know, having change thrust upon us is, um, it makes us feel like we're at the whims of, you know, time and history and it's nothing we can do. We're just passive pawns or players or, you know, and we just have to take what we get. But actually people forget that um, we can enact changes and it's not just recycling it's you know big big things you can change where you bank or you can change your insurance company i think sport if it acts quickly it can connect back to its roots where the ethics of sport sports always had a history of having a voice for social issues I mean, for cricket, you look back to the 70s, you look at the the Windrush generation. So our last talk was about um, the links between the history of empire and um, the history of cricket, how that's linked to racism in the game we see today, and also how the history of cricket and empire basically is the reason we have... Uh, a colonial, uh, a post-colonial world. The reason we are seeing the climate declining and climate uh, stability declining in such a rapid way. And our speaker talked about the Blackwash series in the 70s, how basically the West Indian team came over to the homeland and <laughs> and obliterated the, the home team. And at that time, there was a lot of racism, outward, outward racism, you know, the signs in the streets, no blacks, no, no Irish, no dogs, and all that kind of stuff was still rampant in the population. So that for that team to come and fill um, a black community with pride, you know, the Mexico Olympics, the, um, the black power, you know, movement, all kinds of things like that. So, yeah, sport. Can, is part of the problem no doubt but when you are part of the problem you can also you know it's time to reflect honestly and um, be part of the solution and people could do that we have a very small window but if anybody is going to do it I think cricket has to be one of the um, one of the main sports to be leading the way sadly we're a little bit behind football football is already on the front foot and I'm really annoyed <laughs> even cricket cricket is starting to find a voice now um, so the Australian cricket club uh, the, the men's team the captain Pat Cummins he is started an organization to to try and raise awareness for cricket and climate change um he's been doing that the past year I mean it's really annoying that like you know the home of cricket is so like 
they're just so slow. Like, how can we let the Aussies be winning this one? <laughs> it's like, come on. I thought yeah. as soon as we said the Aussies are winning, that yeah. people would start, you know, piling in to want to solve this problem because, yeah. you know, but it is, it's a really, really slow process. Cricketers are very much, yeah, people just want to go and play cricket or they want to sit and watch it. They don't want to have to worry about all these things that are happening, really. Yeah. But sadly, we don't live in that luxury anymore. We don't have that luxury of being able to put this to one side any longer, sadly. What is it that football's doing that you're impressed with then? They did a net zero game, which obviously, you know, it was probably a publicity stunt, but uh, there was a, you know, it was a, I think Liverpool, it was a really big teams. And that was talked about on the BBC. It was talked about on, you know, national radio um and i mean forest green rovers the forest green rovers have been just well established for a considerable time just a quick aside that you can find an article entitled getting physical with the climate crisis by james dacey on the physics world website physicsworld.com it looks at sustainable infrastructures and initiatives to reduce the carbon footprint of buildings including forest green's wooden stadium Forest Green is a football club not too far from Bristol and it's owned by a man called Dale Vince. You know, he's part of Ecotricity, he's part of... So he's been just doing that for however long and now things are changing. Everybody's kind of going to him to say, well, what can we do? Um, So they've been leading the way, I suppose. And actually, we'd really like... I think Gloucestershire have said that they want to be the cricket club that leads the way, the equivalent of the uh, Forest Green Rovers in um the cricket world so there's one club who uh they changed their kit but on the on each arm they had the the heat stripes so as a talking point so people would be like oh that's a weird looking like people don't normally have those colors on their kit it's not in line with their actual kit colors but the arms have got these stripes on it and um so those are the heat stripes that tell you how the the England has uh, the temperatures have risen in the past century or two centuries or something like that Um, and you know so they are they are doing these things Uh, cricket I don't know what cricket has done (laughs) so Lords will say that they've done enough they have um, you know done good recycling they've uh, they're using completely solar they've got like green walls and stuff but they're also sponsored by jp morgan they weren't they still they're still you know one of the biggest banks that's i mean they're an american bank they don't even play cricket in america really on a large scale you know they don't jp morgan doesn't really have any care for cricket in itself um, and yeah, they're, they're one of the biggest funders of new fossil projects in the past few years, you know, so in essence, yeah, the home of cricket has got a way to go. I think the, the stance that we've always taken is that we don't want to beat anyone 
with a stick. It's not like we're not the ones who go onto the street and glue ourselves to things. We're not the ones who are badgering people and shoving things down their throat and, you know, getting in their way of their ordinary day. In essence, we just want to play cricket. <laughs> we just want to do the thing that we love and, um, and all the positive things that come with that. Annoyingly, there's all these problems happening in the world that mean that actually our game is really considerably under threat. Like the Hit for Six report basically showed us how, of all the sports, cricket is the most vulnerable to climate change. In the countries that play cricket, you know, in the, the past two years, we've seen the worst devastating weather events in cricket playing nations. So you've got the West Indies, cyclones floods um you've got india heat waves flooding pakistan bangladesh new zealand australia wildfires it's just you know it's completely and it's and south africa south africa has been you know obliterated with flooding and when you talk about those um those places it's not just you know communities people people's lives and cricket clubs that are suffering like in the long term cricket's a game where you have to you have to do it for future generations so you if your club is getting you know pummeled every year and you've got to rebuild it and the community around it have to rebuild it every year you are devastating the future players of that game they aren't gonna they, they're not gonna rise up to uh to, to world-class level if and the way i see it and this is one of the main things that has gone if if your opponents are constantly drowning you can't actually say you're winning thank you very much to zina Gilles, and peter for talking to me for this episode of the podcast in researching the podcast i found examples of good practice and bad practice from all over the world. But after looking at the World Cup, I wanted to concentrate on some of the teams local to me, not just because as we take our next tentative steps at the point we are in our battle against COVID-19, I've been able to travel a little bit, at least in a sustainable way and in my local area, and mostly for escapism in the form of sport. We'll be back next month when we'll be looking at something else from this wonderful world of physics. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.